You are listening to Processing Trauma Out Loud, conversations about trauma and healing from two women who are doing the work. Hey everyone, this is Candace and Cher with Processing Trauma Out Loud, back for another episode on why Cher and I think story work, as Cher just affectionately said last week, the bomb. Both Cher and I have spent several years now working with our own coaches, being in story work groups, and really noticing that this journey just keeps getting better for us. Yeah. Uh, we're getting freer. Cher talked about curses last week that we are seeing broken off of us and, and the vows that we've released. And it's been a journey, Cher. And we also named last week, and I just want to mention this quickly, story work is not the only healing modality that we use, but it is the foundational one for what we do with our clients. Yeah. And last week we talked a little bit about the big thing about story work is that when we experience situations of trauma and harm, something in us shifts, something changes. We then respond to those changes as though it is truth and our life is changed going forward, often for decades, literally, until we are able to find a guide who can help us go back to those spaces. And last week, we just talked about the power of curses and agreements and vows to not only cause these negative shifts or these harmful shifts in us, these shifts that steal, kill, and destroy our glory and our freedom as carefree, innocent, beautiful children, but then how we are stuck in that. Yeah, that was a very powerful episode, I felt. And we wanted to just come back and talk a little bit more about what are some of the other things that can cause shifts that we want to keep our eyes open to when we're thinking about our stories of harm. I know last week we talked about that shift for me when I was a little girl and how that impacted really decades of my life. I do want to say, you know, for many, many of those adult years, it looked like I was doing just fine. I, I, I'm i a worker bee. I, I knew how to do things, but I'm curious, Cher, if you can name anything about where you noticed a shift for you in realizing the developmental trauma that you grew up with. I'll name something that I've been coming to terms with very recently, and that is one of the things that we want to look at when we look at our stories of harm is what are themes? What, what are types of situations that come up over and over? For me, one of the themes that comes up when I go back and I think about my stories of harm that stand out to me is the theme of violence. And I experienced a lot of violence in a variety of ways. And I'm even redefining, even ignoring severe emotional neglect is a violent to a young child, literally violent. But then the ways that we are maybe physically assaulted or verbally assaulted or sexually assaulted this is violence, and it has taken me a long time to come to a place where I am saying, I have themes of violence in my stories that I've never really looked at in quite the same way that I am looking 
at now. And I think for me, violence caused profound shifts in the ways that I experienced life, particularly the fact that I think I just did not feel safe ever. I think I was always hypervigilant, afraid of rocking the boat, afraid of, you know, looking over my shoulder, like what's coming and, and being flinching and guarding and, and, and always trying to be pre prepared for the fact that I knew I was in a place where I could not stop it. And how could I endure it? I know your stories. Yeah. And I know that little girl who suffered at the hands of violence in, in multiple ways, but definitely physically. I just want to say that the shifts for that little girl, and I don't, I don't know maybe how old you were when they very first began. I, I'm thinking it probably pre-verbal. I think I have a question. How did that affect her worth? How did that affect her sense of self-worth? I, I remember when I shared, probably I think it was the first story that I ever shared in story group. I had been punished severely for doing something wrong. And, and I remember the question being asked, you know, what do you think you did wrong? And I said, well, I'm not really sure what it was, but it was really bad. And I think that I went through my life feeling that I always did things wrong, mm -hmm. that there was this standard that somehow I had to figure out. I became extremely analytical about reading the room, about always being ready and hypervigilant and watching for the, the very minute gestures in the powerful people in the room. And making sure that I was ready for what was going to come because I would eventually do something wrong and the outcome would be severe. I'm feeling elevated right now. Like the, it, it feels like on my chest, it, it just feels, I feel stress because what, what did it mean if you perceived that you did something wrong? Well, that I was bad, that I was all the things that all the names that I was called stupid, a dumb shit, all the names like I was that because I mean, I literally couldn't figure out how to bring the right kind of hammer that was asked for or, or whatever the demand was to go do something and get this right now, but without guidance of what it was that was even being asked for. And inevitably, I would bring the wrong thing. And so then the, 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 the lashing, the name calling, the violence that would result. So yeah, I think I felt that I was stupid that no matter how hard I tried, I would screw it up. Is that where the vows connected to this striving to make sure that you never do anything wrong? That I don't do anything wrong. And also that everybody in the room is being taken care of. I think this is the responsibility that I carried even more was that I had to child. As a child, I had to be so watchful that everybody was okay. And the minute that I caught the nuance of somebody being dysregulated, I had to be on top of it so that the explosion would not come. Yeah, Ugh. I'm just seeing her in a living room right now, you know, and trying to manage and keep not only her safe, herself safe, but everyone. Here's what I want to say. I. 
I see that little girl and I'm just wondering, I think we have listeners who are really relating to you right now. So I want to, I want to kind of shift into, because we, we could really go back into your story right now and do some story work. Cause I, I, I want to do that, but I know you've had a lot of care. So I'm I good. Wanna... I'm good. I will say thank okay, you. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to care for you. I'm very, I'm very comfortable to, to move forward. Yep. I'm, I'm good. Okay. And, and I want to kind of talk about that shift for you. We're really kind of do, this is a part two from last week of, of the curses and the vows that come from shifts that happened in trauma. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for the way that then when we experience that kind of shift, it sets us up for other shifts like, and I, and I will just, I want to name a couple of other things. And we've talked about some of these things in the past, how triangulation, how when one of our parents establishes a relationship with us that is closer to them or more connected or more loving or serving, that we are closer to that parent than they are to their spouse or even to other adults. They draw us into a triangle where that other adult is further away emotionally from them than we are. Triangulation is very hard and it is a very subtle, it can be very subtle because we are ushered into these places of honor and of feeling chosen and of having power. And yet there can be immense shame also, and even we can be targeted by our by our siblings for for being, you know, the one who gets certain privileges. So triangulation can can bring huge shifts when that happens in the life of a child. Yeah. And I and I just want to say a child cannot and should not have to hold the emotional distresses, dysregulations of the parent. And I also am saying that with great understanding and compassion, that if you notice that you turn to your child, this is, this is our invitation to notice. Yeah. Because even though your child may be very good at taking care of you, actually not their responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. We want to teach our children to be compassionate and and want to help people. We're not talking about that. I used to take my kids to a nursing home and we would sing and and play guitar. And that was a good way to care for people. It's not a child's responsibility to take care of the deep emotional problems and pain of the parent. Right. And so often only to have their own, the child to have their own needs be neglected because they are put in the role of caring for and being the one that the parent turns to rather than the child being able to turn toward the parent. I want to name another thing that I think is very powerful in causing shifts, a couple of them. When we dissociate, Mm-hmm. And and that often happens in trauma when the child is experiencing things that consciously are too heavy to bear. And so the child leaves their body to some extent. They're there. They may look very present, but they have gone into hypo arousal. Their body has shut down. Maybe they have gone into a freeze mode or a collapse mode. They're there and they can even look present, but their prefrontal cortex has gone offline and they often cannot even remember what happened. We can have times 
We can even have years of our lives that we cannot remember our stories. I know for me, for many years, it was very hard for me to remember anything before I was 12 years old. And and I know now that I was in a highly dissociated state during those years just to survive. So dissociation brought a huge shift in my life and the ways that I could and could not even relate to the people in my world. Yeah. And in that place of disassociation for a child where they forget. And then a lot of time I heard someone say, sometimes we can show up saying, oh, my childhood was wonderful. And that can kind of be a clue. You've probably forgotten some things. Not that you try to tell someone that they've had trauma if they haven't, but there is this sense. Here's kind of the, the data. If they in constant patterns of Whatever that looks like, whether it's addiction, anger, avoidance, powering up and always wanting to be in control. Let's just slow down a little bit and say, yes, I feel like I had a wonderful childhood. And why why are these life patterns? But it's just a simple question. No judgment, no shame. But we want to bring some congruence to the journey here. Yeah, and explore the why behind our behavior. We've been in situations where the what of our behavior became the big thing, where we experienced so much judgment and condemnation. Do you remember a time when somebody paused and and, and paused long with you and sat with you to uncover the why? Well, Cher, when you assume that the why is because you're this bad, dangerous, terrible sinner, that's the only reason yeah. Or the reason, what yeah. more is there to talk about except to feel, literally feel like you have a weight on you that you could never get off. And I know I got fired up. We only have two more minutes here. But- I'm, I'm fired up too. Because <laughs> I want to make this comment about, te- I want to make a comment and then we're going to have to close about rebellious <laughs> teenagers. I know the hormonal thing is huge. I get that. I I understand the dynamics of that. And I do think that that is a part of it. But there is a lot more why behind any actions of rebellion that are ongoing. And if we can pause, and if we can turn toward our teenagers who are struggling, and move toward them with care and openness, they might not be ready right now. But there are stories. Yeah. And I want to say, I, I know of a few teenagers doing story work. Yeah. I know they're only teens. Oh my God. I would have loved to have had a story work coach, but, but it's not too soon. Yeah, I know it's, it's not. And this is so worthy, Candace. I think we're setting the stage again for why a story work important. And we're really, we've been focused on when we experience trauma and harm, something shifts in us and it changes the direction of our lives. And we're just naming some, a few of the things that can cause those shifts. And it's important and it's so good, Candace. And just thanks for being willing to go to these hard places in your life and with me and with so many others. Thank you, Cher, for doing the same. Love you, friend. Love you, too. 
Thank you for listening to Processing Trauma Out Loud. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to suggested resources and social media. Like, subscribe, and follow to keep up with our weekly content. And if you don't mind, take a moment to rate and review us. Your feedback is extremely valuable and contributes to the success of this podcast. One last thing. If you have found this podcast helpful in any way, or if you have questions on how to take the next steps on your healing journey, please reach out to us via email at CandiceShare at gmail.com. That's K-A-N-D-A-C-E-S-H-E-R at gmail.com. Our sound engineer is Jeremiah Jones of Auditory LLC. We welcome you to join us for more conversations soon. Take care.